Hey, what's up, Mike? Here we are. Wow. We're... Here we are. We are truly living undeterred. <laughs> <laughs> For those of uh, those of you just joining us, my name is Jeff Johnston. I'm the host of the Living Undeterred podcast. And we have been battling for the last half hour trying to get this thing up and running. And, you know, this is coming from a, a guy who has his project named Living Undeterred and another man that goes by Antarctic Mike. So if we can't figure this out, Mike, we have we have problems, man. We have problems. So welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me as your guest. This is going to be fun. I, I have a. Uh, I have a lot of things I want to talk to you about. Um, cool. I I feel like you're. I I tell people I met you on LinkedIn, and I feel like I've known you since high school. Like you and I, <laughs> like you and I were high school basketball players or something, or you know, uh, hung out together because um, we just got off. We our stories mesh so well, and we just really um, um, felt comfortable being vulnerable to each other. And, well, I mean, um, th since this whole virus thing started, right, this has been the way a lot of people obviously have had conferences, have had calls, have had whatever, sales calls, employee right. calls, and I think met people. I mean, you and I met through one of these things, right? and there are a number of people. In fact, I just sent a message to a guy in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania named Chad Harvey. Chad's another guy I met online like sometime last year. And I said, we ought to get on Zoom because I feel like I've known you for 300 years. You know, it's <laughs> like, <laughs> and that's kind of how you and I are. You know, I feel like I've known you for half of my lifetime yeah. and we still have yet to meet in person. And that will, of course, happen in the month of June. But yep. we haven't met in person yet. But yet I feel like when I meet you in person, I feel like, oh, I've, I've kind of known this guy for like since 1972, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's just crazy because, you know, social media gets social media gets a lot of criticisms and uh, well, well earned and well deserved. But the reality is the, the velocity of information and how we can meet people so quickly now. Oh, and I just, love it. Just since I started the Living Undeterred Project, which is now sure. I think we're in month seven or something or six. Um, just the number of people I've met that I never would have met. Uh, you included. Um, exactly. That, that is due to this this um, this project that I'm really working on, trying to dial down and trying to help myself and also help other people that are struggling with these with these issues. So before we get going, I have a quick question for you. Why aren't you like called Phoenix Mike or Cabo San Lucas Mike? <laughs> why the heck? Why the heck Antarctic? Out of all the places in the world. You why not, why not, why not San, San Diego, right? Which is where yeah, exactly. I live, right? Exactly. <laughs> why Antarctic? <laughs> well, the short answer to the question is um, I ran into a book about an Antarctic expedition that went completely awry. I ran into the story uh, by random chance in a bookstore in August of 2001. And I fell in love with the story because what I fell in love with was the character of the people. Right. In other words, the question I ask myself is, why would somebody intentionally, voluntarily and willingly go into conditions that were somewhere between difficult and dangerous? This was kind of the, the ends of the spectrum that I pictured oh, in yeah. my head. Why would somebody do that? And I thought to myself, the creativity, the character and the courage that it takes to try things that nobody else has ever tried that are somewhere between difficult and dangerous is extraordinary and it's magnetic. So I was instantly drawn to the character of the people. So really this whole, the whole attraction to these, this cold weather stuff really doesn't have anything to do with temperature. It really doesn't have anything to do with 
um, having a few screws loose in my head, which I'm sure I did and I'm sure I still do and always will. But the reality is it was really by design attracted to character of people that were willing to try these kinds of things. That was really the issue. Tell me about Ernest Shackleton. Um, I've, I've, heard, I've, I've heard of him, uh, obviously, in, in, in high school and college and different classes we had. We studied great leaders. And Shackleton is one of these people that I know. I know he's on your Mount Rushmore when it comes to great leaders. But he is. What, fact, what was what was yeah, what was the attraction? I'll, sh I'll show you what something was... special. Um, I will tell you about this character. This was a. This is a book called Antarctic Days. This is from, this is an original first edition from 19, 1913. Oh, wow. And it's signed by Ernest Shackleton and two of the members of his team. Come those on. Are, those are original signatures. Yeah. Where did you um, get that? I bought it from a book dealer in Vancouver. British Columbia. Wow. Many, 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 cool. many, many, many moons ago. But this guy was, I mean, this guy grew up in Ireland and basically lived his whole life at sea. He quit right. school at a very early age because he figured out very early on he was not an academic. He was an adventurous kind of a kid that wanted to see the world and make things happen. Mm -hmm. So he basically um, ended up on, on, like um, cargo ships that would end up sailing around South America and Africa and all over the world. And that's kind of where he got his taste of adventure at sea. And then when it came to the turn of the century in 1900, he was born in 1874. So now around 1900, he would be about 25. Um, England sort of was the first nation in the world to say, you know what? We want to be the first to put somebody at the South Pole. Mm -hmm. This kind of became the quest of the country. And so they put together a team of people um, that was really the first serious attempt to get to the South Pole in 1902. Oh, wow. That, that expedition was led by a guy named Robert Scott. And Ernest Shackleton was a crew member on that particular team. And that expedition, um, they got to Antarctica. And when you get to Antarctica, you have to go about 700 between seven and 800 miles to get from the edge of the continent to the pole. And the pole is roughly in the geographic center of the continent. Hmm. And so this particular expedition, they only got about 200 of the 800 miles into the interior before they had to turn around and come back for safety reasons. So they didn't make it, but at least they all came home alive. Then in 1907, Shackleton launched his own expedition. Hmm. And this particular, and again, nobody had been to the pole yet. And so Shackleton's goal was to be the first to get to the pole. Well, they got within about 97 miles of the pole hmm. when Shackleton determined they had to turn around and come back immediately because the supply of food and fuel was starting to run thin. Now, it was not a question of, do we have enough to get there? The question right. was, do we have enough to get there and get, get back safely? Get back, yeah. Because right? it's not like yep. there's a private Gulfstream plane <laughs> sitting there right, waiting to take him back. Right. So he was, and this was a really, this was a character statement about Shackleton. Because Shackleton really cared more about the well-being, not just of himself, but his crew members, more than he cared about the fame, 
the money, the glory, the honor of being the first right. to the poll. And that's something that was very uncommon in this segment of history. Many people died. You know, it's sort of like these guys that climb Mount Everest. We're going to get to the top at all costs. And they go and they go and they go until their demise, right? Right. And so Shackleton had a little bit more of a level head. And so they turned around and they came home. Then what happened in 1911 and 1912, two of Shackleton's competitors, that Robert Scott, who was the guy Shackleton originally worked for, was racing against a Norwegian named Amundsen. And so picture both teams on parallel tracks racing simultaneously to the pole, like a triangle. So yeah. where my fingers intersect would be where the South Pole is. So they were racing on these two parallel tracks. And um, what happened was the, the Norwegians won the race and they all got back safely. The British team not only lost the race, but Robert Scott and his four crew members died on the return journey. It oh, is, wow. it's a moving story. Um, we'll, we'll save that for a different day. Cause there's a whole host of lessons out of that. But right. so nonetheless, both of those particular teams ended up getting to the South pole. So then we come back to Shackleton. So in 1914 Shackleton says, okay, congratulations. You two guys were the first to get to the pole. I am now launching what he called the last great journey on earth. This is mm -hmm. how he called his, he called it. It mm -hmm. was called the, the Imperial trans Antarctic expedition, the last great journey on earth. And his goal was to get to the pole and through it all the way to the other side. Wow. So this is like doubling down and going all in. So this was right. a really big bet. Right. And that was, that was the expedition when they got stranded down there for two years. They never even made landfall. And they got stranded for two years and all 28 of those people came home alive. I mean, it is absolutely a miracle of a story in terms of how did he, how did he mentally and emotionally keep 27 people engaged in moving forward when all the circumstances were dire at best? I mean, or, there's so many questions out of that, that, that easily parallel into what all of us do for a living every day in the real world. I mean, it sounds like you should write a book about this, Mike. <laughs> hey, wait a minute. I just happen to have your book in front of me. <laughs> now, it's, you, I mean, these are... <laughs> this is this is your book. And I think it came out in 2016. Is that right? Or 15? Yep. And it's called Leading at 90 Below Zero, Extreme Conditions, Extraordinary Results. And I've read it. And what you just got done talking about for about nine minutes there encompasses a big block of your book. And I tell you, this is this is a really good book, Mike, because I, I really, I'll plead ignorance here. I knew nothing about Ernest Shackleton other than hmm. other than maybe I maybe it would have been a multiple choice answer on on, <laughs> you know, I, I would have no idea about the history. But you are so passionate about his story and making sure that the legacy continues. But more importantly, the metaphors that you have brought to the business world to leaders to, I can use this in just a, a family environment, you know, oh, the, the, totally. you know make, yeah. making sure that, that the people in the family that have the certain responsibilities feel like they're part of a team and not being bossed around and told what to do. And there's so many really neat, and I've, I've got things marked and highlighted and um, I plan on going back and kind of circling back and getting some good information out here. But I do I mean, suggest sure, like, for example, I'm sure your son, Ian, who plays golf, I am right. sure there are lessons in Shackleton's story from his life 
that would help him be a better golfer. I'm Absolutely. totally convinced of that. Whether Absolutely. it's high school kids, yep. professionals, business people, soccer yep. moms, second graders, it doesn't matter. I mean, just the the like I mentioned about about being a great leader is how people will follow you as they say into the fire. You know, they'll do they'll do whatever needs to be done. And you you write about Shackleton's group and the sacrifices they had to make. There's a chapter in your book where they talk about sacrificing their own dogs. I mean, what a sacrifice. I have three pets and I can't imagine, you know, having to put my animals down. But if it came down to me eating or them eating, I, I guess yeah. I guess that's an easy decision, right? In the well, context. Well, I think easy here, Monday morning quarterbacking. There you go. In, right in the real world. Yeah. I think in the real environment, a very difficult decision, right? Gotcha. And the reason I tell that story is because it highlights the importance of making a difficult decision. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, sometimes the difficult decisions, emotionally, they're not very easy for people to make. I mean, if they were, we wouldn't have to talk about it, right? And I talk about this. And one of the questions I ask CEOs is, I want you to think about the hardest decision you know you have to make right now. Mm -hmm. that you haven't yet made. What is that decision? And I get people in, in my sessions with them, I get them to write down the specifics. I mean, I say, look, I want names, addresses, credit card numbers, passport numbers. Like I want that degree of specifics mm -hmm. in the commitment you're going to make in terms of the decision that you have to make. Because if they don't make these decisions, th the consequences are sometimes fatal, right? right. They can be. And so that decision that Shackleton made, yeah, that was a very difficult decision. But yet, you know, when you think about it, every decision he makes, he has to think about the impact on all the people because he's responsible for the whole crew. Therefore, he has to think about the impact not only of every decision he makes, but indecision, right? Because not making a decision is making a decision. And so you right. have to really think about these things. And this is very hard, very hard for CEOs to do today. So how'd you go from being, you know, uh, you know, attached to this story to being one of the first nine people to run the first Antarctic ice marathon <laughs> in 2000? I mean, how do you make that leap to, I mean, a lot of people hear compelling stories, Mike, but they don't go train in a freezer for a year or however long you had to train. Um, was it two years? I don't know. Yeah. Uh, it was a long time. Um, but how do you make that leap? Well, it was a, let me think of the math here. It, 2001 is when I ran into the story. It was a, it was a nine year leap. So these things don't happen overnight, right? right? In 2001, when I, when I first ran in, ran in, ran into the story, right? My first exposure to the whole subject, that's when I said to myself, okay, this is how my company's leadership course is now going to get taught. I was working mm -hmm. as an employee for a big publicly traded company based out of Houston, Texas. And my responsibility was to build a recruiting program for our sales managers, mm -hmm. about half the United States. And I mean, these people were, they were terrible at best on a good day. They just didn't know what they were doing. So they needed help. Well, one of the things I discovered was a big part of the, about the employee problem was not just hiring people, but keeping them. And so one of the things I discovered when I understood Shackleton's story was there are lessons in here for leaders on how to keep people on a team engaged in moving forward. Mm -hmm. Well, that was a big part of what was not happening in my company. And right. so that's when I said, okay, I'm going to write a course for leading and engaging employees based on Shackleton's story. So I literally 
wrote a course hmm. and I used the pictures from Shackleton's story. I went out and I spent 40 yep. bucks of my boss's own money on a book. Yeah. And, um, and I cut out all the pictures and I scanned them and I put them in order and I told the story and it became a smashing hit within my own company. Mm -hmm. And that's when I said, okay, I have something special here. In fact, the, when it really cemented in my mind, the very last presentation I ever did for my company was at a, at a management conference in Indianapolis. In fact, we were at the Marriott Hotel at the Keystone of the Crossing, which is on the north side of Indianapolis. I, mm -hmm. I can still picture this. And um, now it's the end of the week. It's a five-day class. And so at the end of the fifth day, we have an exercise where we kind of go around the room and everybody gets to comment on the highlight of the week. I'll never forget this one guy's comment. As I stand here today in 2021, I'm picturing this. The guy was sitting right about 10 o'clock to me. And he stands up and he says, I don't even know where the hell Antarctica is, <laughs> but I'm going. And I thought to myself, I got him. Right. Yeah. And I'm like, yep. okay, I knew there was something special here. That's when I said, okay, I have to get, I have to get out of the corporate world and I have to do this on my own. Right. But the problem was, I didn't have any credibility. Mm -hmm. And so a friend of mine suggested that I go to Antarctica and run this marathon. <laughs> and in fact, <laughs> I called this guy. It was a funny story. I get referred to a guy by the name of Greg Godek. I have no idea who this guy is. Somebody gave me his name and his phone number. Apparently, he wrote a book and he was a speaker <laughs> and he was on the Oprah Winfrey show. So I figured, okay, he's got to have credibility. Right. So I call this guy up. I'm a complete stranger. And I, it was just, this was in February of 2005. I can still picture the phone call. I was sitting in the parking lot at Starbucks at Claremont Mesa Boulevard in the 805 in San Diego. I was sitting in my gold-colored 1994 <laughs> Volvo Turbo, 940 Turbo. I can still picture sure. this. So I called <laughs> this guy up, and I said, hi, my name is Mike. I know you don't know me, but Marcia Snow referred me. And we get onto this phone call, and Greg says, you have about 10 minutes. We were on the phone for an hour. Hmm. And at the end of the hour, he was so fascinated by my fascination with Antarctica and Shackleton. He says to me, well, have you ever been there? And I'm like, what do you mean have I ever been there? <laughs> I'm sure it's far away. It's expensive. And Delta doesn't fly there. Like, that's my favorite airline. Yeah. And Greg, and I said to him, I said, well, Greg, um, he says, Mike, you have to go. Right. If you don't go, you don't have any credibility. And I said, well, right. Greg, little did you know that next year, meaning 2006, for the first time ever, there's going to be a marathon run on an ice shelf located 600 miles from the South Pole. His response to me, you're in. You're in, yeah. I'm like, well, hold on a minute here. Let's, let's define yeah. you're in, right? I mean, I haven't run a marathon in 20 years. What am right. I going to eat? What am I going to wear? How am I going to train for this? Right. I live in a place called San Diego, California, right? <laughs> right? So, so okay. So Greg says, okay, look, you got to go. You'll figure it out, right? Okay. So I commit. I'm, I'm, I'm in. Now I'm driving home, and I'm thinking to myself, what have I done? How am I going to get the hall? <laughs> What's Angela right. going to think about this, right. right? So I remember I walk in the front door, and I'm like, okay, we have to talk. You're going to do what? When's the last time you ran that far? Well, it was 20 years ago. Okay, um, how much is this going to cost us? Don't worry, it's a good deal. No, that's not going to work. How much, right. Mike? Okay, all in to do this, it's about $25,000. Yeah. They're paying you or you're paying them, yeah. right? I mean, it's like, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> who, gave you this, who gave you this bright idea? 
Right. This guy named Greg Godak. Well, who the hell is Greg? I just met the guy on the phone 10 minutes ago. Like yes. I literally could not pick this guy out of a police lineup to say this guy could have been in a phone booth in India for all I knew. He's just a voice right. on the other end of a phone. Right? right. So my wife's thinking, all right, well, Mike's pretty hard headed. If he's made up his mind, he's not changing. He's going right. to Antarctica. So that was, that was the commitment to Antarctica. Um, but of course now it's like, well, I live in San Diego and Angela is not going to relocate to Siberia or Canada or Northern Minnesota. And that's how I ended up finding the freezer. Now in the book, you, this whole conversation we're having is well detailed in the book and there's pictures of you in the freezer training. And, um, <laughs> you know, I, I think, I think people are drawn to the fact that you were one of the first people to do this. Right. Yet I'm, I'm not really drawn to the story because of that. I'm, I'm more drawn to how the, the um, how you've taken this story and you've, you've kind of um, used it to help leaders become better leaders or become better people. Right. Right. And I noticed in the book, I wrote this down. You wrote a comment that I know you didn't finish first. <laughs> Matter of fact, you finished last, I think, right in the I book. Did. But you told, but you said that, um, that, that it wasn't about the winning in a practical sense. And, um, you were trying to follow Shackleton's lead and you weren't concerned about winning. And I think far too often in quote races, that's yep. what we do. We compare ourselves to how we're doing, uh, in the race, you know, and well, that's I think true. for you, it wasn't about winning. Uh, it was about following in somebody's footsteps that you had tremendous admiration for. There's yeah, the medal. That's, that's the gold medal, right? <laughs> that's an Olympic gold medal, even though it represented last place out of nine people. Yeah. I mean, you know, the big question I got when I got back was, well, what was your time? <laughs> oh, yeah. That, like, do you I, I not never understand? You that. Like, I do you not understand? You well, runners will ask me this a lot. Like, what was your time? <laughs> like, do you not understand? I went to the moon, right? Yeah. I lived in a freezer for two years. I said, time, seven hours and 15 minutes, nine runners, ninth place, right? An hour behind the next guy. Right. But you know what? I felt like I won an Olympic gold medal. Absolutely. And the reason is, is because I didn't go down there to run fast. I didn't go down there to beat anybody. I went down there to struggle. Mm -hmm. Remember, I was going to walk in the shoes of my heroes. Mm. So quite frankly, the longer I'm out there and the harder it is, the more closely I'm walking in their shoes. In fact, I was actually picturing in my mind being out there for 48 hours. That was the number I had cemented in my head when I started. 48 mm. hours, crawling on the ground, disoriented and dehydrated, not seeing another person for two straight days. That's kind of what I had in my mind. And then, of course, I'm thinking to myself, well, yeah, I, I kind of want that. But on the other hand, I want to come home. And I went back and forth and back and forth on this. I think, but, the, <laughs> oh, go ahead. I think the misconception, Mike, for people that hear a story like this um, is the physical, you know, the Rocky in the freezer, you know, hitting the big slab of, of meat, you know, <laughs> yeah. the mental aspect of this has to have been stronger, it had to have been more, um, more impactful for you. You had to be stronger mentally, probably, or equal as, as physically. Yes. I mean, physically, you kind of get into a rhythm. Right. And as long as you're not going too fast or too slow, you have to find sort of this optimal rhythmic zone of activity where the work doesn't feel like work. And then you can right. kind of your body can get into a rhythm and you can go for a long way. But it's the mental stuff that was really hard, because when you're out there by yourself, 
I mean, I didn't see people for hours and hours and hours. One amazing and thing in the book you talked <laughs> about that I think will put this in light. You talked about the, the reference. There was no reference point. And in reading your book, I thought, you know, that, that is so true. If you're running on a sheet of ice and all you see is the horizon where there's just more ice, it's almost like you're running on a stationary, uh, you know, treadmill or something, right? Yes. In fact, one of the nicknames of Antarctica, they call it the land of no horizon. Because mm -hmm. what happens is you picture like this hand here, my upper hand is the cloud layer. And right. the bottom hand is the ground level. Right. Well, what happens is when the clouds come in and they meet the ground, there's no horizon. So you hmm. literally have no reference point. Hmm. And it's just gray. I mean, at one point, up from down, left from right, forward from backward looked the same. Like literally, hmm. everything was just gray. And there's no mountains in the background. There's no buildings. There's no reference points. So you're going and you're going and you're going. But you have no sense of forward progress. I mean, picture the car trip when you took as a kid and you see the mountain in the, in the four, you yeah. know, out in the distance and you look at the mountain and you go, ah, 20 minutes, we'll be there. 20 minutes later, you're not any closer <laughs> than right. you were 20 minutes prior, right? right? Because it, it, the mind has to it get fooled, gets fooled. Well, when there's nothing, when there's no mountains, it's even harder. So the point is you're exerting energy and you're using your body and you're moving and you're moving and you're moving, but you don't have any reference to the fact that you're making progress can you still stay the course and stay in rhythm even when your mind is playing a different game and that's where the mental muscles have to really they've got to be strong and this is why the freezer came in in into play so much because the real value of the freezer had little to nothing to do with the temperature even oh, though yeah. it was cold right the, the hard part of the freezer was 59 feet back and forth and back and forth. Like if the width of the screen was the length of the freezer, this would be 59 feet from here to here, 59, 59. And I went back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. I mean, forever. And people are like, you got to be out of your mind, right? To be doing this, right? Yeah. Well, I did think that until I had a flashback to 1976. Okay, I grew up in a city called Allentown, Pennsylvania. It's about an hour outside of Philadelphia. It was a Thursday night hockey practice in 1976. And one of my coaches, a guy named Ed, skated up to me and he said this, Mike, you're going to play the game the way you practice. If you make the practice harder, the game goes easier. Right. And he skates away. And I thought to myself, that flashback came into my mind 30 yeah. years That's a good one. later in the freezer. And I thought to myself, well, Mike, what if you see all of this back and forth the way Ed taught you to see the hockey practice 30 years Absolutely. ago? Absolutely. Look at this. Like, if you make this harder, the real the game, which is the real event in Antarctica, will go easier. And it did. It really did. Well, let me let me pivot a second and throw this at you. Um, because I've got you've got my wheel spinning here. Um, so you know my story and you know my why. And yep. My why became my way. And I've used a quote that um, you've heard me say before, um, purpose becomes passion when it gets personal. Mm -hmm. And for me, losing a child to um, heroin, going on almost five years now, 
that was my why. That That is the answer to every question. Jeff, why do you do this? Why do you write a book? Why do you do a run a nonprofit? Why do you do this? Right. That's my why. I don't, why do you quit drinking alcohol? Why do you, why do you stop gambling? You know, that's my why. So I'm going to ask you this question. Um, what is your why? What, what drives Antarctic Mike to do the things that you do? Well, I'll answer that question with a story. Yeah. So um, about six years ago, I was in Cincinnati, Ohio, and I had a whole series of speaking engagements like Monday through Friday. So I'm in a speaking engagement on a Monday morning, and um, there's a guy in the group by the name of John Strasser. John is a CEO of a Cincinnati-based construction company called Valley Interiors. So John hears me speak, and he knew I was going to be in town all week. So he says, hey, can you do me a favor? Can, can I take you to dinner? I said, sure. Um, so he says, stop by my office before we go out to eat, and we'll go from my office, and we'll go have dinner. I said, sure. So I stopped by his office. Keep in mind... It's almost dark. It's five o'clock in January in Cincinnati. It's snowing. Okay, it's a dreary, snowy, cold, dark day in Cincinnati. So I go by his office and John says, hey, there's three guys in the back room, three construction workers that just finished their day. They're tired, they're beat up, but can you take 10 minutes and give them an overview of what I heard today? I said, sure. So I go to the mm. back room and I gave a 10 minute overview of what I'd spent the day on. And I didn't really think anything about it. And I didn't know who these three guys were. So John and I go to dinner and the week goes on and I come home. John calls me the following week and he says, you know that 10 minutes you spent with my three of my guys? I said, yeah. He goes, you don't realize this, but that changed the life of one of those three guys. And I'm like, well, I have mm -hmm. to hear this story. So he goes, one of those three guys was a guy named Jared Dieselberg. Jared is a drywall I guess he specializes in ceilings. I didn't know construction guys can specialize in walls, floors, ceilings. Yeah. But Jared is this guy that hangs upside down like a monkey all day on wires and ropes. And he, he works on ceilings. And um, he said, it really inspired Jared. And I said, well, how did it change his life? And he said, well, Jared signed up to run what's called the Flying Pig Half Marathon. Oh, this is wow. one of the largest half marathons in the United States. I mean, this is like 90,000 people do this. I mean, it takes over the whole city of Cincinnati for like a weekend, right? And so I said, oh, this is pretty inspiring. Can you send me his phone number? I want to call him and hear the story firsthand. He goes, sure. So he sends me his phone number and I get the guy on the phone. And Jared goes, yeah, you know, I heard your story and I figured, you know what? If you could change your life, I could change mine. Right. And I said, well, how did you change your life? He said, well, I'm not really a runner. I committed to a, to a half marathon before I even owned a pair of running shoes. Mm -hmm. And Jared said, I'm a little bit overweight. I'm not in very good shape and I'm a manager, but I have a real bad temper. I'm not real patient with my guys. And he said, since I signed up for this thing, I started running. And he said, now all of a sudden I'm losing weight and I'm feeling better about myself. And I'm like, oh, that's pretty cool. He goes, well, it doesn't stop there. Now I'm finding that I'm more patient with my crew and I'm mm. listening to that. And I'm like, wow, okay, so now it's affecting his job. Right. And then he goes, it doesn't stop there. He said, now it's affecting my marriage. And I'm like, mm. what? Now, now I'm really leaning in, right? And I'm right. like, I got to hear this one. He goes, <laughs> Christina, my wife and I have been separated for months. We haven't spoken to each other in many months. Hmm. Since I started running, it gave us something to talk about because Christina likes to run. 
So right. now we're running together and we're actually talking for the first time in months. I mean, I'm on the phone, I'm crying, right? I mean, I'm like, this is moving story, right? So I said to Jared, I'm coming to Cincinnati. I'm going to run that flying pig with you oh, cool. and John. And I cool. normally wouldn't go to Cincinnati to run this. So I fly to Cincinnati and, and Jared and I run the whole thing together, hand in hand, the entire 13 miles. And um, about a week after the race, Jared calls me, Christina and I have moved back in together. I mean, their relationship is now right. taken off again. Yeah. And Christina writes like a year in review, like on her Facebook page. And like, here are the highlights of the year. And the big highlight of that particular year was the rebuilding of her marriage hmm. with Jared. And today, to this very day, they are still married. Um, they're friends of mine. I've met Christina since then. And, you know, that story just reminds me of why I do what I do. I mean, it's it impacts people. And I get emails and phone calls and things years after the fact. Hey, that one picture you showed me, that yeah. one story you told me, I yeah. still think about it. I still use it. And I'm like, well, that's the power of a story, right? People remember stories forever and ever and ever. All and because of a 10-minute conversation you had with three people you know 10 that, minutes right i mean yeah you know 10 minutes can change your life and if literally. you would have been on your phone texting or you know being distracted by something you wouldn't have taken the time to do that and there's that ripple effect and i think um let me ask you a question in regards mm -hmm. to the importance of goal setting um mm -hmm. you know you have this audacious goal of running in Antarctic. Most the right. average person or average person isn't going to do that. I'm breaking That's that to you right now, Mike. The average correct. person isn't going to go do that. <laughs> really? No, no, you're, you're not average. Oh, I thought this was for everybody. <laughs> no, no. So, I mean, for the average person out there, that's, that's, you know, probably not Antarctic Mike, but they want to have that, their own type of a goal, like running Antarctic. I mean, how important is it that they have uh, achievable, attainable goals. And do you think that is what's missing in a lot of people's lives right now? And that's why we have a society that's just not very happy. We have a very um, depressed, anxious society. And it seems to me a lot of it's because people just are unmotivated. Well, I think a lot of people are hitting their head on a ceiling, whether it's a self-imposed ceiling or a ceiling imposed by the media, by society, by their parents, by whoever. And I think people are banging their head on a ceiling and they're reaching very low limits. And so one of the things I know that really sort of prompted me to go to Antarctica was I thought to myself, okay, Mike, what is it that you really want to do, right? What if you remove all the barriers and all the possibilities and all the financial constraints, just what do you really want to do? Well, I wanted to be a professional speaker. I knew that since December 16th. 1983, which is a Friday night. I mean, I know the day, the time and the place and the setting when I made the decision. And so I knew I wanted to do that, but I think at some point you have to ask yourself the question, you know, what is it that you really want to do? Now, at the mm -hmm. time I made this decision, I was 40 years old. And what I pictured in my head was picture like an hourglass, you know, that has sand in it. Yeah. And I, and I pictured the amount of sand that's dropping to the bottom as being a finite amount of sand. I mean, I'm not saying it was running out today, right? but clearly it was finite. right? And I thought to myself, okay, there's only so much sand in the hourglass. Don't waste it, Mike, because when it's mm -hmm. gone, it's gone. You'll never get it back. And I thought, do this now, because if I don't do it now, it never will come much too quickly. And then the circumstance will make my decision for me. 
make the choice while you still can, because eventually the circumstances are going to make them for you. And they're usually not going to make the ones that you really want. So that's when I said to myself, all right, I'm going. It's now or never. And I'm doing it because I've always wanted to do this speaking thing. And I knew going to Antarctica was going to be the impetus that would really propel me. And so that's why I made that decision. And I think people have to just ask themselves the question, what is it that I really want to learn, do, or become? This is what drives human behavior. I think think for people to find something they can um, evolve with, you know, something they can keep learning. I know in my case, when I lost a son and lost a marriage, mm-hmm. all in, in, a, in a short amount of time span, there was a tremendous amount of uh, chaos in my life, more in those three, four years than there was preceding the, the previous 50 combined probably. And at a point when I should have been starting to really focus about slowing down retirement, things like that. Things that I think probably are some of the problems is the whole concept of retirement is a horrible idea. Personally, people think of it as slowing down and we want to be, we want to be revving things up into (laughs) into retirement like like you are. And me, I can't see either one of us actually, can you see you sitting on a couch with a remote control mic and watching football on a Sunday all day and eating pizza and drinking beer with your friends? I mean, I, I can't see me ever doing that. And I don't if think I, I could I, see if you. I, if I win the lottery tomorrow, I'm not changing a thing. <laughs> yeah. Well, you're I probably mean, gonna you're probably gonna move to Antarctica and you're probably gonna do <laughs> buy, all your speaking buy a up there. House there. Yeah. Yeah. No. Exactly. No, but I mean, I think no, I think you're right. I mean, I think you know you have to get to a point where you just have to figure out: Do you really want to do what you want to do, or mm-hmm. are you going to let insecurities and fears and all these other constraints? take you down a road you really don't want to go down. And then eventually one day you're going to look back on the road and you're going to go, I wish I had taken the other one, but it's too late. It's like, I'm just not going to, I'm not going to live that way. It's like in my book, I talk about the two roads, you know, the the day that uh, I had to tell the boy, my other two sons, Roman and Ian, that their brother Seth was dead. You know, I had to present it in a way that, you know, a 13 and a 15 year old could understand. Sure. And for me, I presented it as two roads you know, and one road of anger, despair, and hatred, and we become addicts or alcoholics and our lives unravel, or a road of inspiration and motivation. And this could be the single greatest thing that can happen to us to make us better people and those around us. I'm on the second road. I ask you to join me. And that's how I presented it. And I think if people went through their life and had, um, you know, had this mindset, this living undeterred mindset, where they literally just every day see forks in the road and What's a good road? What's a bad road? You know, as, as an alcoholic in the past, I even hate that term today. Mm-hmm. There's two roads, you know, do, do I have a glass of Camus or Opus One, my two favorite Cabernets when no <laughs> one's watching and no one would know? Or do I take the road where I don't and I know in my heart that that's the road I want to be on? And, you know, I'm I'm odd enough, Mike, where, you know, I... I still go to restaurants and I told this to somebody, maybe I told this to you earlier, but I still go to restaurants and I will order a glass of Cabernet, the most expensive glass I can find to make it hurt even more. <laughs> and I'll put it in front of me and I won't drink it with no intention of drinking it. And the waitress will come over and say, well, are you waiting for, you know, they're thinking maybe I got stood up on a date or something or, <laughs> right. and I'm like, well, that, that probably <laughs> yeah, happens anyway. Still but, sitting yeah. There, right? Yeah. yeah. So, you know, and I'm, and I'm looking at it and I, <laughs> you know, and I just, 
here's my why. I put Seth's face on that glass of wine. And yeah. I will never, I will never be tempted to drink that because I see his face looking back at me thinking, wow, dad, what are you doing? You know? And so I play these games with me that work well for me. And I was on a podcast the other night when I was talking to someone about some of these things that I got fairly animated about, like depression, things like that, that for me, I tried depression. I sucked at it. I, I didn't like, I didn't like it. I hated it. flunked out of that class. Huh? So I quit. I just stopped being, I stopped being, and I, and see, I can't understand why just people can't think that I didn't want to drink alcohol. So I just quit. I, right. I was a compulsive gambler going to Vegas four or five times a year in my thirties. I just quit. So to me, I'm really perplexed in why more people out there, and maybe there are Mike, they just haven't found their why. And I'm, I, I kind of think, if we can get, you and I can get conversations going and somebody's now sitting around going, well, I haven't lost a child, so I can't really relate to Jeff. Um, and, you know, I didn't lose a marriage. Um, I don't have cancer or anything like that. Yeah. But man, here's a, here's a guy that, you know, just ran a, what, you ran a 62.1 mile ultra marathon. Mm -hmm. I mean, come on, man. You know, I'm getting my ass off the couch. I'm going to run that 45 minutes on my elliptical and I'm going to feel like <laughs> Antarctic Mike, you know? <laughs> And I, I guess these are the stories that people need to hear, you know, in the face of adversity, when against all odds, kind of like Rocky, you know, do, do we get up? Do we fight or do we go to the bottle? Do we get drunk every night? Do we lose everything around us? You know, what are some things we can do uh, individually? You know, if I better myself, Mike, um, my, my, my coworkers are better. My parents are better. My kids are better. My neighbors are better. But if I don't take care of myself, then everything else around me crumbles. Yeah. And that's what, the collateral damage with all this, all this stuff going on with all the problems people are having is they don't realize how many people they're sucking into that black hole with you. And, you know, hopefully you and I can talk about these things and get people to make some changes to change. The last thing I'll say, I know you want to say some, um, I've learned over my years of giving financial advice in just dealing with behavioral finance mm -hmm. or economics, economics, let's call it. There's two ways to change behavior. And you, you hit on this a few minutes ago. You inspire people or you scare them. And when someone comes to you and says, Mike, you have cancer. If you don't stop smoking, you're going to die. That's not inspiration. That, that's right. fear. I don't want to die. Correct. But if someone says, hey, Ernest Shackleton, 100 years before you or whatever that was a long time ago, mm -hmm. um, went up and did all this stuff. And you're like, well, hey, I can, I, I want to go do that too. That's right. not, that's not something motivation out of fear. That's mm -hmm. motivation out of inspiration. Correct. So that's how you change behavior. You either have to scare people or motivate them. And I much, I'd much rather spend my life inspiring people. Well, it's like my friend Mark Braun from Cambridge in St. Louis says, people do everything in their life out of one of two modes: love and fear. Mm-hmm. Those are the two modes. Right. And, you know, I just operate out of the mode of what do I really like to do? The other thing that goes in my mind consciously is how can I make an impact on other people? Right. Because I really believe that we were all created and put here, not just to take care of ourselves, but to take mm -hmm. care of others. Mm -hmm. And so I think we have to ask ourselves the question, look, we only have so much time mm -hmm. and so many talents that we can put forth. And obviously we have to be responsible and take care. I mean, look, we all have to live in a house and turn the water on and do the thing, go to the doctor and do the things that we do. Okay. We get that. But beyond that, right. We've got to start thinking about how can we use our efforts 
to help other people mm-hmm. and make the most impact on other people. And I knew that my efforts, I mean, I was a corporate recruiter forever and ever and ever. And yes, it paid the bills and it allowed me to, to take care of Angela and I, but it, it made minimal impact on other people. I knew that going out and telling stories the way I could, I knew it would inspire people like Jared and others to make changes in their life. And I knew that. And that was part of what really fueled me to say, it's time to jump off the cliff. I mean, half of it was, what is it that I really want to do? And the other half was, how can I impact people the most? And I think those two things just gave me the courage to kind of jump off the cliff, so to speak, and say, it's time to work for myself. It's time to create my own stories and do my own thing. Now, you had mentioned to me earlier, um, and you don't have to get too deep into this, about a, a personal thing that had happened um, uh, with a fall. Um, and, and maybe that was the impetus to some of the why that you have. And you realize the, the impermanence, uh, the concept of impermanence that, you know, hey, the, you know, any moment someone I really care about could die for a million right. different, for a million different causes. Um, and I think that embracing impermanence is something I'm really trying to promote heavily. Uh-huh. And, and I know when you and I talked, uh, you had, you had talked about some things in your personal life that, that I think maybe literally clicked a light on, you know, you talked about coming back and having your, your place dark and uh, yeah, things, I'll, I'll tell you the story. I, um, do you mind, do you mind sharing no, that? Cause all, I, I know I, I didn't know how comfortable you were in sharing. No, that. that's okay. No. So yeah, I mean, I'm writing about it in the book I'm about to print. So <laughs> okay. yeah, it's, it's going to go to yeah. the world here pretty soon anyway. But no, okay. I, I'm comfortable telling it. Um, and I tell this story in every one of my speaking engagements. So the question is, why did I go to Antarctica? It's been now, what is this, 2021? It's been 16 years since I've been. So, you know, why did you really go to Antarctica? And I think, well, didn't I go because I wanted to run in this first ever Antarctic ice marathon? Well, yeah, that was part of it. Didn't you go because you wanted to walk in the shoes of your hero, Ernest Shackleton? Well, yeah, I did. But I didn't know the answer to the question, why did I really go? Mm-hmm. until December 24th of 2018. Mm-hmm. What happened was um, Angela was in the hospital. She had a rock climbing accident in college and she broke nearly every bone in her body. Um, and when I start the speaking engagement, I say, that's why I went to Antarctica. And of course, people are sitting on the edge of their chair like, what does that have to do with Antarctica, right? Well, I'm going to get to that. And you'll know by <laughs> right. the right. Just give me about an hour and you'll know the answer. So <laughs> So the answer is um, she was in the hospital and I had spent the day with her in the hospital. And now it's what, nine or 10 o'clock at night and it's time to come home, right? She's tired. I'm tired. The day's over. So I come home to my house. We don't have kids. So I walk in the house. There's no lights on in the house. It's like pitch black and it's really quiet, like so quiet. The silence was screaming. And I'm standing there in the dark and in the quiet. And I'm thinking to myself, okay, when this episode is all over, is she coming home with or without me? For the first time in 30 years, I doubted whether or not she'd ever be able to come home. Hmm. And I thought to myself, Shackleton must have felt like this during part of that two years. They were down there for two years, stranded when I'm sure their life was flashing before their eyes many times. And I thought he must have been in situations like this. And I thought to myself, how did he get through this? 
then I remembered something Shackleton said when he got back from being stranded for two years. He said, we had seen God in his splendors. We heard the text that nature renders. We had reached the naked soul of man. Mm -hmm. And I thought to myself, what did he mean by the naked soul of man? I mean, besides being like the coolest title for a book you could ever yeah. write, right? <laughs> I mean, seriously, like you'd pick that book up. What did he mean yeah. by that? He must have meant that's got to be the place in life where you're stuck and you're alone. There's nobody around you. And difficulty is everywhere on all sides of you. And it's just caving in from every angle. And there's very little you can do. And I thought he must have been in that situation many times. Well, how did he get through it? Then I remembered this picture. This is the most powerful picture from Shackleton's story. When that ship, when that ship was stuck in the ice. Yeah. Okay. He taught his guys to mentally let go, let go of the things they have no control over and focus on what they do. This is a very powerful picture. And they're playing and, soccer there, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It makes sense. They're from England. Um, <laughs> he said, okay, he taught these guys to let go. And I thought, okay, he let go. Then I thought to myself, well, what would Shackleton say to me if he were standing here in my house? Then I heard his voice. He said, let Angela go. And I'm like, let her go. What do you mean? Let her go. How am I going to do this? Angela is the first and only person in my whole life in 56 years that I've ever dated. What do you mean? Let her go. He said, Mike, just let her go. Meaning just let God handle this. No matter what the outcome, right? You're going to be okay. And emotionally, I, I kind of let her go. Well, hmm. fortunately she made it through that episode and came home. But I thought to myself, well, maybe that's why you really went to Antarctica, Mike. Maybe you didn't just go to run in this first ever Antarctic ice marathon. Yeah. Maybe you didn't just go to walk in the shoes of your hero. Maybe you didn't just go to Antarctica because you got some screws loose in your head. You did and you still do. That's not different. Maybe you went to Antarctica to learn to let go of the most important people in the hardest moments of your life. I and I think about and, and I think about you and your son Seth, and I thought, yeah. well, Jeff let Seth go. Yeah. I mean, and, and boy, and it's hard. I mean, like you say, pain is unavoidable. The pain of that situation yeah. is unavoidable, but the suffering is a choice, yeah. right? You're obviously not suffering from that. I am not suffering through. I mean, Anz and I have been through so many circumstances. I mean, holy cow, you write a novel on just that alone, but. Um, but just the, the difficulty of letting go of somebody. And I just, and I just really see now, Angela and I've been together for 31 years. And I'm like, okay, look, I know nothing lasts forever. And there's never going to be a day that's the right time, right? There's right. never enough time. But, right. but realistically, I, I feel like I'm more prepared for difficult moments that are yeah, coming around too. the corner. And me I'm too. sure you probably feel the same way, right? Life is nothing Absolutely. other than a series of blind corners, right? We yeah. know that. And around the corner, man, you can get hit by a train. You know, I've yeah. been in that situation many times. You've been in that situation. Our viewers have been in that situation yeah. or will be in that situation. But you've got to be prepared for those moments. And I feel like all this stuff from Antarctica is what prepared me. You can put that right there. Thank you. So I think I think in a way you did find that is you did find your why. 
And um, yeah. it's no, it's normally deeper than what you think uh, for most of True. us. And True. I'm, I'm still not convinced that I know a hundred percent my why just yet. I mean, I have an, oh, I, have an I have an easy uh, excuse for a why, and that's what <laughs> I went through, you know. But the reality yeah. is, I think it's deeper than that. I think, I think I'm on some some quest where I'm trying to take conventional beliefs that I have, you know, the most, most, um, you know, immovable objects in my life, my strongest mm -hmm. convictions that I have, but yep. then challenge, then challenge them and then rewrite them and challenge them and rewrite them. And, you know, and there's so many things in your book that I kept reading going, wow. Yeah. I, I, I've not done what Mike has done and I certainly hadn't done what Shackleton's done, but I'm doing some things right now that I can definitely re relate to what I'm going sure. through. And I know there's people watching this right now that are either at the beginning of some type of a journey of exploration or they're in the middle of one uh, or they just finished one and now they're ready to start another one. That's the other thing I think, Mike, I was going to ask you is what's next for Antarctic, Mike? <laughs> I mean, that's I would I would say. I would never ask you how long it took you to ran it. I would just say, okay, what's yeah. next? You know? Yeah, that's that's a very common um that's obviously a very common question. I know you're coming to Iowa. <laughs> and I got some cornfields here you can run in if you want, you know. Um, well, that's a good question, and that's a fair question. People ask me a lot, you know, what's next? Like I have to do some other stupid human trick that's bigger and faster and more dangerous. Right. Well, I mean, I, first of all, I realize the human body has limits. And right. Realistically, my days of marathons and those conditions, realistically, they're done because I'd like to save knees, shoulders and hips for a few more years. Right. I don't want right. to spend them prematurely. But right. um, so so I do. You know, I've really backed off physically, but I think really more of what's next. Um, really, your story is an example. I mean, I last year, 2020, I really made the decision that what was next for me was to help other people tell their story. I made a very conscious decision last year to do this because I had just finished a documentary film about a construction company story in Las Vegas that's a really, really good story. Right. And it right. was very satisfying helping these people tell their story. And I thought, well, I'm pretty good at this and I like this, so I'm gonna keep doing this. And I shot another one in Myrtle Beach um, about a month ago and it's just getting finished now. And I'm coming to Iowa, obviously, next month, and we're going to tell your story. And then there's a whole bunch of others that I have behind that that um, I'm constantly working on that are great stories that I want to help other people tell their story. So for really for me, that's really what's next. My my goal is to spend 90% of my time and earn 90% of my income only from helping other people tell their story. Keynote speaking will be like the, oh, by the way, I will do yeah. that realistically maybe twice a month. Really, I don't want to. I don't want to run from stage to stage to stage right. to stage. I just don't want right. to do that. I want to spend more time with people like you and other corporations, helping them tell their story because they need help, and I know how to do it. And it's it's a big inspiration to viewers, and and these are great stories that will change the lives of people forever and ever and ever. So I was I was. Um... You know, I've started the, the Living Undeterred project for me has been um, about six months, roughly. And that's that's kind of how long I've been doing it. And uh, in that time frame, I've I've run across a lot of people that have kind of approached me. Hey, Jeff, you know, subscribe to our blah, blah, blah. We can get your story out to a lot of people, blah, blah, blah. You know, of I, course. I met you 
And after about, I don't know, four or five conversations that we had, I didn't know what the hell you did. I'm like, I know this guy ran in Antarctica. Why is he talking to me for an hour? Right. And he's asking so many questions about my story. And I had to go to your profile and look, and I'm, I'm not really sure what this guy does. So I think, I think, um, during one of our conversations, I just said, I think I said something like, Hey Mike, I, I want to hire you. You did. <laughs> Do you, you, mind, do you mind sharing that story real quick? Because oh, you this told was me funny. That. Yeah, this was I, I funny, right? My chair. Yeah, exactly. Well, I'll tell the viewers. I and during the last year, right? I've met a lot of people like Jeff right here, you know, through Zoom calls and Streamyard calls because this is how this is how we've been forced by the virus, right? So I meet all these people, and I'm just a big fan of these stories. And some of these stories that are out there are great. So the impetus for us was you were on a conversation somewhere. I think it was on LinkedIn. And there was a reference to the fact that you lost a son. And I'm like, I have to hear this one. So that's when I probably reached out and said, hey, I'd love to hear your story. And you're like, sure, come on down. So yeah. that's when we Zoomed, right? And I came into your living room and you came into mine and yep. here we were. And you told me the story and I'm like, wow, the world should know this one, right? So that that just sparked, you know, plus, you know, the Iron Maiden banner that I see behind you there. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, I knew we were going to be good friends because, you know, we just have a lot in common. And so that was kind of the impetus. And I just... You're right. And then that time I was in South Carolina. I'll never forget this. I spent the day at a corporation in Pauly's Island. It was a long day. I just driven several hours and I got back to my hotel and it was about seven o'clock at night. And you're like, hey, let's jump on Zoom. And I'm like, okay, hadn't even gone to the bathroom or eaten dinner. And I jump on Zoom with you. And one of the first things you say to me was, okay, I've made a decision. And I'm like, well, what's your decision? <laughs> and you're like, I'm going to hire you. And I'm thinking, I don't drive people to the airport. What do you, what do you mean you're going to hire me? Right. And you I'm said, a, I'm a little I'm impulsive. Gonna... <laughs> and you said, I'm going to hire you to put my story on video. Right. And I remember saying to you, well, listen, I, I'm flattered. Why did you pick me? Here's exactly what you said. Because you didn't push. You didn't ask. You didn't even tell me what you did for a living. And I said, well, what did I do? And you just paused for a minute and you said, you listened. Yeah. And that's when I wrote down the title of the next book I'm going to write. Don't push, don't ask, don't tell, don't sell. Simply listen, dot, 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 for the sake of understanding. Yeah, absolutely. And I thought, how many salespeople would get so much further ahead if that's what they did? Right. Uh, the answer is a lot, right? Right. Because most of these clowns out there, and you've seen these people, they push oh, yeah. and they yeah. push and yeah. they're selling and yeah. yelling and screaming yeah. and they're putting yeah. brochures and bullet points and bull you know yeah. what in front of people. Yeah. And it's like, people don't want that stuff. Yeah. You know, I think what happened was, I think the way I conducted myself, I think what you saw, you saw a reflection I think of what you want to become more like. And I think you also saw a reflection of somebody you can trust because Absolutely. when people, when people Absolutely. are doing this, you can't trust yeah. that, right? That's a reason to not trust people. But right. when they start going like this, you can trust them when they're not, when they're backing off of you and they're not pushing anything. That's when you go, Hey, I kind of like that guy. I like that gal. That's somebody I can trust because the issue at hand is, can I trust you? Right. I mean, oh, I could, we could go on and on about, well, you had forever. a, you had a, you had a genuine interest in, um, you know, the challenges I had, and maybe you were equating them to Shackleton's journey and, and, 
you know, all these different, um, you know, analogies that you could use with these stories. And so, um, you know, I, 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 at sometimes during this journey, I get, I get concerned that I'm, um, bringing up losing a child too frequently to make a point. And I have to set that aside. I have, I have to set that aside and say, for me to really make an impact for people in their lives, to make changes, to inspire them to change behavior, whether it's to quit drinking, to, you know, resolve a relationship, bury the hatchet, move on, you know, mm -hmm. live a life of impermanence that, you know, things are going to be coming to an end. It, it, it really forced me to become vulnerable. And mm -hmm. I mean, I mean, open my chest up vulnerable. Right. Exactly. And, and, and do it on a daily basis. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, just day in and day out. And my, my blogs just, are full of, of tears. My blogs are full of, of joy and my mm -hmm. podcasts are meeting people that I don't have an agenda. You know, I've never made a penny off of anything I've done on this project. Everything I've made has gone in my nonprofit, which our plan is to get that dispersed as grants, um, to allow me to go and, and maybe speak and things like that, which, yeah, I, I, I would love that environment. I, I like public speaking. Mm -hmm. I feel like if the moment I stop talking about Seth, he truly dies. Mm -hmm. And that was an important part of my book that I did not want to ever stop talking about him. And I run the risk of talking about him too much where I can walk into a room and people say, well, here comes Jeff. He's going to start talking about his child again that passed away. Mm -hmm. You know what? Um, I guess I need to be aware of that. But at the same token, the moment I stop talking about him, then he, then he, I mean, he really does die. I mean, who, who else is out there, you know, talking about him like this? And I'm not doing that to be disparaging to other people in his family. But I mean, most most times when someone dies, you know, you go to the funeral, you, you, you know, you, you do your condolences and you and you kind of go back to your own life. You go back to your right. kids and your grand and you just kind of you just kind of move on until what? Until something happens in your life that's personal. So you lose a child or you have an alcohol problem in your family or your parents die or your spouse has cancer until mm -hmm. it becomes personal. Then you get reengaged again. I'm just trying to get people to say, why do we have to wait for something to become personal to get engaged in things that we should be doing anyway? You know, well, you know, the issue about somebody saying, you know what, that guy just. He's just using his dead son's story as game yeah, for himself. Right? I've heard okay. that. I've heard that. Oh, I understand that. And I've heard yeah. the same thing about Angela. He's just talking about Angela. He's right. using her, you know, that kind of thing. Just to, he's looking for sympathy, right? That kind of thing. Well, I could tell the story and be guilty of that, but I could also tell the story and not be guilty of that, right? It depends right. on why right. you're telling the story is right. the big thing. And I and right. I know you well enough to know every time you've said anything about your son, Seth, I know it's only been for my gain, not yours. I know right. that because there's been a lesson, right? And the lesson in your case is choose the road called better, not bitter, mm -hmm. right? Because at the intersection, right, where the Y starts, that's called disaster, right? That's right. called trauma. That's called difficulty. Right. And it's in varying degrees and colors. But guess what? Everybody gets to that fork in the road. Everybody's right. already been there and we're going to continue to be there. The only question yeah. is, which road are we going to pick? That's the right. only question. And I think the whole impetus behind any time you even mention your son's name is to help people make a better choice. And yeah. I know that about you. And that's why 
I just don't think you're going to have very many people that are going to try and label you in that regard. Now, is there going to always be yeah. somebody in a large crowd at the end of the spectrum? Of course. But you know what? You'll never be able to help that guy. And just just let that guy go. You know, yeah. just, just let him go. That's that's not your audience. You can't ever help that guy. Well, that's okay. Because there's a um, lot of people in the middle of the bell curve that will go, that was inspiring. Thank you for being so open. I wish I had that kind of courage to be open. And they will have that much courage because they'll see somebody like you and they'll go, hey, if he can open up, then I can open up too. Yeah. And then, you know, I didn't plan on talking about my compulsive gambling problem I had in my 30s. You know, as a financial planner, that's probably not something you go out and put on your resume. Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, I didn't. Fin I didn't FINRA, FINRA wouldn't like no, that one, would they? <laughs> I didn't, no, no. But I don't care now because uh, I'm not anymore. Um, but, you know, and I, and I had a massive drinking problem. I was a functional alcoholic until December 24, 2017, uh, 14 months after Seth died. And I quit. And quitting alcohol was the easiest thing I've ever done in my life. Once. I found my why. And that's my that's the whole key. And I get into healthy debates. I don't argue with people ever. Right. I get into healthy debates about alcoholism and you know, people <laughs> that want to subscribe to disease and and they're werewolves and they're cursed and all that. I that's fine. And I, I hope I hope that that mindset helps you give up drinking. But if it doesn't, and you believe in these things and it's not working, then why not add another arrow to your quiver? And that's what I'm all about right. is adding, right. adding tools to get people to deal with adversity. So, you know, I think, um, but I'd like to just add Mike to kind of wrap this up. I mean, we are at an hour and five minutes, which has been, been awesome. Uh, and I don't, I don't really have a time frame with these <laughs> Seems things. Seems like five minutes. Yeah, like five I know. Minutes. <laughs> but you and I have talked longer on the phone. So, and I, and I, yeah. you know, just to let people know, I, I am going to have you come out to Iowa here shortly and we're going to be, putting together, I don't know what you call it, a, a, a mini, I, I say the word documentary, but that sounds so archaic, but a story. I mean, you're, you're yeah. a tremendous storyteller. And I think, I think one time someone asked me, and I even wrote a blog on this, they said, Jeff, what, what are you? Are you a motivational coach? Are you a life coach? Are you, are you a, you know, a, 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 a a, a theologian? Are you a clinical <laughs> practitioner? And I'm like, I'm, no, I'm a dad. I'm a neighbor. I'm a voter. I'm a friend. But what I am is a storyteller. That That's mm -hmm. what I am. And, I, and all the other stuff is fluff yeah. to me. I, I don't know right. a lot about the other stuff to say I'm an expert in anything. And so, right. so for you, I, that was the attraction. It's like, you know, I think you and I together as two storytellers you know, I, obviously you have to make a living. I understand that. And ultimately down the road, I got to find a way. I can't be footing the bill for all this forever. I mean, at some point, my, my, my nonprofit's got to have to start making money of or, or nonprofits go out of business. Correct. And then I can't help people. So there's that dichotomy Correct. there. But it's like you and I together telling a story for two or three minutes, a powerful story that now I can get out there and send to high school, send to, you know, colleges, send to organizations that, that talk to kids. And I can get in and I can get into kids before the age of first use that that 14 to 16 is the sweet spot, Mike, where I think we can help kids. I'm fairly certain that Jeff Johnston isn't going to save a 38 year old alcoholic mom drinking two bottles of white wine, you know, a night. I, I don't think I'm going to help that person. I don't know if I have the patience. I don't have the desire, but I do for the kids. I do, I do for the kids. I do to get in to see the sets of the world right. at 14 years old and not to tell them what not to do, but teach them how to think, how to make better choices. And that is what I want to do for the rest of my life.
That's what I want to do. And I, and I welcome you on my journey. And I'm, I'm so excited to get this project done because I have a feeling this is one of many projects that we'll be working together on. Well, one thing you don't know about my upcoming trip to Iowa, um, I had a conversation this morning with a videographer who's in Des Moines. And I got referred to him by uh, a Vistage guy that I'm very good friends with in, in Des Moines. And so okay. I talked to this guy named Andrew for a while. And it turns out he's not going to be available to do our shoot because he's got some other commitments. But he referred me to two other guys. And one of these guys is producing some miniseries for Netflix. Hmm. And the light bulb went off in my head. And I thought, just maybe if we do this right, this little two and a half, three minute thing that we're going to create could become possibly the impetus to spark an interest in a miniseries. I mean, there's enough content in your story when you look at it metaphorically to talk yeah. about, you know, the road of better versus bitter over financial issues, health issues, marital issues, child raising issues. There's a million applications. You know, what if there was a five part, and I'm just thinking out loud, yeah, yeah, yeah. A, a oh. five part miniseries. And let's say each series was 15 minutes, right? It's not a huge yeah. commitment, 15 minute story. Um, about better versus bitter financially, maritally, child, whatever the case is. Okay. And each of those five part series, let's say Netflix charges 99 cents per each one, right? People pay 99 cents, right? I mean, that's not yeah. unreasonable. Yeah. So somebody's going to pay 99 cents. Well, let's suppose hypothetically Netflix invests a half a million dollars in this, just, just to use a number, half a million dollars. Well, how many 99 cent clicks is it going to take? to get their money back. Yeah. Not a whole lot relative right. to the population base of their, of their subscriber base. Right. And I'm thinking to myself, if there's ever been a time when yep. people need to be inspired and encouraged yeah. to choose better versus bitter, it's yeah. now it's and now. And I think you said the other day, it's not just an, an opioid epidemic, uh, uh, conversation. No. As a matter of fact, I spend more time on talking about alcoholism and suicidal ideation and things that that um, are under the mental health umbrella. And I'm fairly convinced, Mike, that that Seth had mental health issues. Now, he was labeled ADD, as you and I both have ADD. Um, if you've never been diagnosed, I'll diagnose you, Mike. You have ADD. Um, <laughs> um, <I'm> OK, <laughs> it's a superpower. It's a superpower. Um, but it's like, you know, I think I think the problem is, is that people hear my story and they think it's limited to the opioid epidemic. And, and yeah. granted, 80,000. You know, when Seth died, it was 55,000 in our country died of, of opioid overdoses. This year, they're predicting it year over year to be close to 80,000. That that has to stop. At some point, we got to get this curve going the other direction. So I think by telling these stories, meeting other dads like Steve Grant, who's become a good friend of mine, right. he lost Chris, Chris and Kelly, his only two boys, only two. I, I lost one of my three. I can't even imagine losing two of you, your only two. Right. And so here's a gentleman that raised a million dollars. His story needs to be told. And so there's so many people that are jumping yep. on this living undeterred you know, wagon that we're just rolling around to, meeting people every day. And it's like, you know, at some point, um, at some point I'm, I'm fairly confident that, uh, that we're going to be reaching a lot of people and a lot of people are going to be changing their, their, their lives for the better. And well, it's um, not, it's not drugs versus no, the issue right, is not drugs. Right, it's right, not about drugs. Right. I agree. Just like in our agree. society today, it's not 
Biden versus Trump. It's right. not black versus white. Right. It's not any of that stuff. Right, right. It goes back to what my friend Mark Braun said. It's love or fear. Yeah. So when you look at the world in front of us and you look at the drug overdoses and the riots and the violence and the black versus white and all this and stuff yeah. you see out there in the world, obviously that's not love, right? You can right. figure that out. So what is it? It's fear. Right. And you know what people fear the most? Taking off the mask that they're wearing. Mm-hmm. People spend their whole life building a mask and the mask looks pretty. The mask is made up of, you know, school degrees and families and businesses and accomplishments and boats and and cars and healthy families. And, you know, two kids that don't have any problems and get A's in school. That's the mask. Right. But yet that's not reality. Reality is what's behind the mask. And what's behind the mask is fear, insecurity, and falling short. Right. Right. And I think what people really want in their lives, people really don't want the mask. The irony is they spend their whole life building this mask. Right. But what they really want is they want to take it off. Right. And some people just don't have the courage to take it off. And I think this is where God comes into the picture. If you don't have the courage to take it off, he'll take it off. I mean, in yeah. some way, right, the mask is going to come off. And, you know, that's that's really when you're at the, that intersection called the naked soul of man. It's like living your life without the mask. That's really what the naked soul of man is, because that's who I really am. Mm-hmm. And I think that people want to be accepted for who they are without the mask. And I right. think if, if the world understands how to help people in that regard, that's how we're going to start solving the problems. It's not this law versus that law and this gun or not that gun. That's not the issue. Whether you believe in that stuff or not is right. not the point, right? The point right. is the issue is do people feel accepted without their mask? And I think stories like yours help people to see, I can have the courage to take my mask off. I can have the courage to remove the facade. You know, right. I, have to, I guess I have to, you know, the word mask today is a rel- little relative since we've all basically been wearing one for yeah. a year and a half, right? I'm not talking about this. Right, I'm talking right. about the facade, right, that people put up. But, you know, it would be I, – I can see this miniseries in my head, and I can see a Netflix or an Amazon Prime. I can see them saying, hmm, I want to meet these characters. I want to hear more about this. And I'm happy you said characters because there's so many people out there that have – similar, um, more compelling stories, um, maybe uh, different types of stories unique to them that, you know, that this is the reason why the Living Undeterred podcast idea came came to fruition was I wanted to get, I wanted to talk to these people. I wanted to go out mm-hmm. and meet them. And I wanted other people to be a fly on the wall because you and I could sit on the phone and talk and it's just you and I, we hang up and then we go on. But a conversation like this, someone right now could be watching this when we do run this in a few weeks mm-hmm. and they could, they could, see the end of this and go, wow, you know, this, this was, I need to make changes in my life or, or I could end up making choices like Seth made or I, or right. I, I, you know, something else could happen to me that my life would spiral out of control. So True. Um, any, any last words of wisdom you want to throw out there and then we'll wrap this up. And oh, by, um, by, the, by the way, um, uh, I wanted to tell you that uh, we just got done doing our charity, our first ever charity golf outing. And that's the sign over here. Um, ah. this, this last weekend we raised $25,000, wow. um, for in four months, we, we did this in four months and Molly had a lot to do with it. Molly Nordlock and runs everything in my life, but $25,000 in a year where we have, you know, COVID has killed small businesses around the country. The derecho in Cedar Rapids, I don't know if you're familiar with it, but when you get here, you'll find out the derecho was the worst uh, winds we've ever had it through, through Cedar Rapids, non, non-tornado, non-tornado related winds. 
These really? were these were 200 mile an hour hurricane winds uh, for 45 minutes, and and it, it wow. uh, yeah it, it destroyed when, Cedar when Rapids. When was that? Last August. And oh really? And so yeah, so we have businesses that donated that haven't got their insurance checks yet that donated $50 gift certificates. And I mean, it's it's a tremendous story of the love of the community and how they just jumped on the back of my story, which is a, you know, it's a story, but some of these people probably aren't making any money even feed their own families. So here they are giving $50 donations to a nonprofit, to a kid they never met, you know, to, to benefit somebody they never met. And so Cedar Rapids yeah. deserves a round of applause. The, the people of Iowa are awesome. You told me in all your travels, and I, I'm pretty sure you weren't sugarcoating this, you told me Iowa is your favorite state. Of all, People ask me this question a lot. Where's your favorite place to go? And I've been everywhere, right? All the states. Been You've been in Antarctica. <laughs> I've been all over, exactly. Europe, Asia, South America. And I, the answer shocks people. Iowa. And they look at me like, what's wrong with you, right? Because I think they expect me to say <laughs> New York or Seattle or Miami, right? Or some London, England or some glamorous yeah. city. And of course, the next question is why? Yeah, why potatoes, Iowa? right? We have potatoes. <laughs> Wait a minute, that's Idaho. <laughs> no, here's the answer. Because in the middle of the country, in the smallest cities like Nottoway, Iowa, Stewart, Iowa, Atlantic, Iowa, these are towns of 35 people at best on a good day. These are the nicest people in the world. These are people that live with what I call an unlocked door mindset where they just, they're just an open book. They trust yeah. people. Yeah. They're not pretentious. They're not materialistic. They're just regular people that get up and go to work and feed their kids and send their kids to school. And I mean, it's like, I think they are a picture of what most people want to be like. I think yeah. most people do not want to be hung up on, am I driving the right Mercedes? Am I buying the clothes at the right place? It, and I don't it, think people really want to get hung up on that, even though they are. I think they see the picture of the people that aren't and they go, I wish I was more like that guy. It's funny you say that. I, I, I was listening to Joe Rogan the other day and he had, cause he had Dan Gable on and Dan Gable's a you know famous you know wrestling icon in, in the right. world of wrestling. And one of the guys that came out that stayed with Dan and did a lot of the video and stuff and had him on his podcast to help him, helping uh, videotape this stuff. Actually, it was he was on Joe Rogan's show, but it wasn't Joe's podcast. It was a different guy. He said of all the places he's ever been, he never felt more at home, more welcome the week he spent at the Gables and just being around Iowans and just walking into restaurants. And even though he was with Dan Gable, that probably didn't hurt any. Um, but the fact is that the people of Iowa, and there's a reason why I raised $25,000 in four months, Mike, right. You know, at $25 a time, $50 a time, that's a lot of people that, that, that donated money. So, Hey, listen, brother, I'm going to see you on our live stream we have coming up. So when this runs, our live stream will actually be over. Right. And so for those people who, um, haven't known about you, they will on the live stream, but I do want to recommend that if people want to support, I know people have given financially to my nonprofit, The Choices Network. I know people have bought the book and that helps my nonprofit as well. But one way you can help is to subscribe to our YouTube channel. Um, we're trying to do a much better. I'm not a salesman when it comes to this stuff, Mike. I don't understand clicks, likes, and follows. I just create content. <laughs> and um, how it gets out there, I don't know. But I'm, I'm told to tell people that make sure if they think this stuff's beneficial, if they want to help my cause, they need to go make comments, do the Google reviews, whatever that's called, uh, do the five-star ratings, make um, do the subscriptions on, on YouTube, do all the things that the, the big people, the corporate people, the LinkedIn's of the world can start to see people getting on board this, this project and we can start to do more good for more people.
And one more thing, send it to your network. If you like it, share it. Right. right. That helps a lot. That's how you get to, you know, you say, how do these stories get to 40 million views? You're not reaching 40 million people. Right. You're reaching 10 people that send yep. it to 10, that send it to 10 and you follow me. Right. And all of a sudden yep. you're at 40 million in a hurry. So send it to other people that, you know, well, listen, I love you, brother. Um, really Thank enjoyed, you. really enjoyed getting to know you. And, uh, I'm looking really forward to having you come out here to Iowa, um, and, uh, meet some of the, the, uh, the people that I run circles with every day. So, I always welcome a chance to get back to my favorite of all 50 states. This is going to be, this is going to be a vacation, even though it's I work. normally, normally I end every show. I end every show with reminding the listeners and reminding my guests to always live undeterred. But with you, man, I don't, I don't think I have to remind you. I don't think I have to remind you to keep living undeterred. You're doing a pretty good job yourself. So well, thank you. Um, have a great night. Uh, appreciate uh, your friendship and your support. Thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. Hope I can help your viewers.